a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 99 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say for the 99th time, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan or any other social media outlet of your choice. And if you can do the show a big favor, especially here for episode 99 and in two weeks for episode 100, please retweet and share this show. It's the way that it grows grassroots through social media. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort, and I would really appreciate it. But anyway, it's episode 99. It's so very close to episode 100 that I can taste it. What does that mean? Ultimately, not very much beyond the fact that I've been stubborn enough to keep this podcast going for nearly four years. But fortunately for everyone listening... When I was starting to get close to episode 100, I sent out several requests that were a shot-in-the-dark type of requests to big-name guests to have for episode 100, and I ended up actually getting two of them to come through, which gave me the dilemma of deciding who to have as episode 100 because they were both uh, high-profile enough that they would make a great 100th guest. And that is why right now we're going to have back-to-back big-time guests here for episode 99 and two weeks from today for episode 100. Who that guest is will remain a secret for a little bit longer, but right now we are joined by pretty much the voice of everything. He's the voice of the New York Rangers. He does baseball and football on Fox Sports. He does hockey for NBC. He does boxing. He maybe puts on a cape and fights crime at night. I'm not 100% sure. Kenny Albert, welcome to the show. Logan, great to be with you. I appreciate the introduction. Um, have not conquered curling yet. I think that might be the one sport that uh, I'll look forward to sometime in the future. Have you made the request to the Olympics, people? Because that's one of the things that you've done that I didn't put on the introduction. You've done the Olympics. Have you asked to do curling? Uh, no, I've not made that request. I've actually uh, checked out curling a couple of times at, at various Olympics. It looks exciting, but uh, maybe someday. Who knows? <laughs> Is there any sport that you've, you – I, I get some facetiousness there. Is there any sport that you've wanted to cover that you haven't? Not really. I've been real fortunate to be involved in the four major sports, as you mentioned, and, and now boxing as well. I will say this, the one sport that – I attempted once, and at least in my own mind, did not have much success, was uh, college wrestling. This was back in the early to mid-90s. I was working at Home Team Sports in Washington, D.C., and I was doing Capitals hockey for them and filling in on some NBA and Major League Baseball games and uh, also did some college basketball. They had the rights to the ACC and the CAA um, 
with the ACC, it was basically every sport except men's basketball uh, who had the big network contracts. And I was once assigned uh, to do the ACC college wrestling tournament. It was down in North Carolina in Carmichael Auditorium where Michael Jordan had played his college basketball. So I was excited to work in an iconic venue. And I did all the preparation. I, I bought wrestling for dummies. I studied. I spoke to former wrestlers. And fortunately, I had a great analyst because uh, despite all the studying and, and preparing for the event, once it started, I really had no clue what I was watching. I was like the traffic cop. I would uh, you know, give the name, the record, the hometown of the wrestlers. And once they actually started wrestling, I had no clue. I left it up to my color analyst. So that, that was a one and done. Was there anything in the technical description or anything that you didn't think went well? Why did you I – mean, that sounds about like what I would expect a wrestling broadcast to go. What did you think didn't go well about it? Well, it probably went better than, than I'm recalling now, but uh, I, I just didn't feel comfortable. I, I didn't really uh, – you know, the other sports I had grown up watching, and um, I just didn't feel comfortable, but I'm sure it went a lot better than, than I just described to you. But, again, fortunately I had a real good color analyst that night. We're all our own toughest critics, that's for sure. You just came off the Pacquiao-Thurman fight a few days ago, and it just got me thinking about what play-by-play would be like for boxing when you're doing the blow-by-blow. And it kind of the energy and the uniqueness of that that event would bring. Would you just describe your process for doing blow-by-blow for boxing? We haven't talked to a boxing announcer before on this show. Well, it's a lot different than the other sports, uh, play-by-play of hockey, basketball, football, baseball, versus the blow-by-blow in boxing. And I certainly haven't done nearly as much boxing as I have the other sports, but it's been a lot of fun. It's a challenge. There's no ball or puck, so you're not really describing the action the same as you would with the other sports. Uh, to me, the, the two things that stand out, number one, it could end at any time. A hockey game, you know, is going at least 60 minutes. A basketball game, 48 minutes. Baseball game, nine innings, football game, 60 minutes. But in boxing, it could end 30 seconds into round one. So you always have to be prepared for that big moment. In the fight the other night, uh, there was a knockdown. Pacquiao knocked down Keith Thurman late in the first round. So you mentioned the energy and the excitement that you have to bring. um, And you just have to be ready. Like I said, uh, you don't want to be caught up in a story. You don't want to be looking down at notes. Uh, Hopefully your color analyst isn't speaking at the time of, of a big knockdown or a fight ending knockdown. Uh, the other thing is, you know, with all the preparation we put in for every sport, you, you very rarely get in more than 10 or 15% of the information that you have. You have to let the game or the event dictate what you talk about uh, right throughout. But you do have those five or six nuggets, no matter what the sport is, no matter what the event that you want to try and get in at some point. And in the other sports, you can you can pace yourself because you know uh, you have an idea for how long the game's going to go. But in boxing, I think because it could end early, it could end in the second, third, fourth round. Sometimes I find myself trying to get in some of the more important notes and nuggets um, early on because, again, it could wind up on the cutting room floor if the fight ends in the second round. You mentioned something interesting that I want to follow up on and developing kind of a rhythm with your analyst during a boxing broadcast when you don't know when things are going to happen. In a football game, you know exactly when your analyst is going to talk and when he's going to shut up and you're going to talk. How do you develop that just innate feel of knowing when to shut up and let your analyst go and vice versa? Well, it's a great question. and 
to me, the analysts are the stars. The, the play-by-play broadcaster is there as the traffic cop to describe the play, uh, to drop in pertinent information and statistics to get you in and out of commercials, in and out of graphics, help lead the analyst into replays. So my personal feeling is the viewers want to hear the analysts. Obviously, uh, they're going to hear you a good portion of the time, but you know, I'll try to set up my analysts uh, throughout the telecast, no matter what the sport is. With boxing, um, with Fox, we've done six shows now, and I have Lennox Lewis, former heavyweight champion of the world, and Joe Goosen, a renowned trainer uh, for the last four decades out in California. And, and they have uh, uniquely different styles. Uh, Lennox is uh, quieter than Joe. Um, he's a little more succinct when he makes his points. He's, he's soft-spoken and, and somewhat laid back, which you might be surprised considering that he was the heavyweight champ of the world. Um, Joe is, is very talkative, very opinionated, and I think he does a great job. I've learned so much uh, about the sport of boxing from both guys. And Joe's been around champions. He's trained champions. He is one of the, uh, in my mind, one of the top experts in the sport of boxing. So, um, again, I'll try to set them up throughout the fight. Um, I feel like in boxing it could be a little more conversational. You don't have to describe every single punch uh, that's taken place in the ring because the viewers can see it. It's a TV broadcast, not a radio broadcast. So, a little more conversational, uh, but I'll definitely try to get in at those big moments, uh, such as the knockdown in the first round. But, um, again, my philosophy is to try and set up Joe and Lennox as much as possible. I'm going to assume you've never heard this before, but have you heard that you grew up with a family with some pretty good sportscasters? I have heard that. In fact, you have. I'm not I have uh, told the story many times. <laughs> um, growing up with my father and, and my two uncles, Alan and Steve, Whenever my uncles would come over on holidays or special occasions, when I was a youngster growing up, it was almost like that was the first all-sports radio station. I would sit around the table and just listen to the stories and the anecdotes about the games, the players, and the teams, and it was just so much fun listening to uh, uh, you know, their travel stories and, uh, again, the different games that they called. And um, The first all-sports radio station was WFAN in 1987, so I had a little bit of a head start as far as tuning in to uh, – listening to some of the uh, terrific sportscasters of that time. Did you ever raise your hand and say, hey, this is Kenny, first time, long time. Can I get uh, my opinion in? You know, uh, I recall I I received a tape recorder for my fifth birthday for my parents, a a toy tape recorder, and I would call games. I would would set up my bedroom like a TV or radio studio. I would have the desk and then the bed in the middle and the TV on the other side. I do recall interviewing my uncles at times on on the tape recorder when they would come over to the house. Do you have any of those tapes anymore? I have uh, boxes and boxes of, of tapes and media guides. A lot of it's in a storage facility. I uh, haven't listened back in a long time, but I'm somewhat of a hoarder. I'm an organized hoarder. I, I can find anything in my home office. I have another room down in the basement, uh, which is uh, somewhat of a poor man's sports museum, again, with magazines, media guides. I, I might have the biggest collection of VHS tapes because I would tape all my games back in the day. Fox would send us the VHS tape of every NFL, NHL, MLB game that I worked. So probably have over a thousand VHS tapes. Don't know that I'll ever watch them again, but uh, <laughs> do have them downstairs. Say, what type of event or conditions would it take for you to go and dig through for a really old tape uh, for old time's sake? Well, I, I will tell you when I've dug them out. Um, on a couple of occasions, if 
an icon uh, in the sports world passed away and we had the good fortune to have him on a telecast. I have dug out a couple of those tapes, still have a VHS machine and I'll pop it in and take a photo. And just a, a couple of uh, instances that I recall when Yogi Berra uh, passed away, we once worked a baseball game in St. Louis. We had Joe Garagiola and Yogi Berra who both uh, grew up in, in the St. Louis area. We had them on in the booth and, we had uh, a number of on-cameras uh, during the inning that they were with us, so I uh, popped the tape in and made sure to take a screenshot of it with my phone. Uh, also, when the singer James Brown passed away, and uh, th- this is one of my favorite moments in the broadcast booth. It was a Falcons game back in the late 90s. I was working with Tim Green, who had played for the Falcons, and James Brown was doing a post-game concert at the Georgia Dome, and our producer, P.T. Navarro at the time, uh, somehow arranged for him to come join us during the second half of that Falcons game and James Brown, the studio host was with Fox at the time before he made the move to CBS. And I actually asked James Brown, the singer, Hey, why don't you throw it to a game break, throw it to an update from one James Brown to the other. And that's exactly what he did. So uh, when he passed, I also popped the VHS tape in and uh, was able to take a screenshot uh, from that tape. So I do go into the vault once in a while. So on just about every interview that you've done that I came across in my research, you tell that story about the tape recorder, and it's a really good one. But have you ever thought what could have been different had they bought you a calculator or <laughs> or something else that would have led you down a different path? I've never been asked that question, uh, and it's a great one. But, you know, sons of lawyers uh, gravitate in that direction often, sons of doctors and daughters of doctors and daughters of lawyers go into those professions. Um, it's really all I ever wanted to do. I, I did some sports writing as well. I was the sports editor of my high school newspaper, uh, wrote for the town newspaper, wrote some articles for the newspaper in college. So I think that could have been a direction that I may have headed in if if uh, broadcasting and play-by-play didn't work out. But uh, that's really all I was ever interested in, all I wanted to do. And I was real fortunate in 10th grade, growing up on Long Island, a small cable station, Cox Cable in Great Neck, uh, showed up at my high school to film a girls' basketball game. And I was at all the games, covering them for the newspaper, and I would fill in on the public address uh, for the teacher who usually did it uh, when he wasn't available. And I introduced myself to the producer, and I volunteered to do play-by-play. And he said, sure, we don't have anybody. He clipped a microphone on my shirt. I did play-by-play of this girls' basketball game in January of... 84, and uh, that was my 10th grade year, sophomore year in high school. And after the game, I got the producer's business card, uh, the late Roy Menton, who passed away a couple of years ago, and I think of him all the time because he gave me such a huge opportunity. Over the next three years, I did uh, hundreds of um, high school basketball, baseball, hockey, football, soccer, lacrosse, all over Long Island, and I would bring friends along as color analysts. And back in the 80s, there really weren't any of these sportscasting camps, uh, that I wind up speaking at a couple of times every summer, and they do such a terrific job. And, and kids get started at such a younger age now. And I felt like I had such an advantage at the time doing these games in high school because there weren't really many opportunities out there. So anyone else who was interested in play-by-play at the time, they had to wait until college. So I had a three-year head start thanks to Roy Menton and Cox Cable in Great Neck. I've talked to a lot of other sportscasters on this show who grew up listening to Marv Albert, your father. Obviously, I was joking when I asked if you heard that. But uh, a lot of them said that they started early as 
basically imitations of of Marv before developing their own style. And I just wonder, being in the same house and being around it, did your early stuff sound like an imitation of your dad? It probably sounded like a poor imitation of a five-year-old at the time. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I've never really consciously imitated him. I know others have, and I've heard, I've heard many. He would always rate them. People would come up to him in in men's rooms and airports and outside Madison Square Garden. But I've, I've never consciously done an imitation. I'm sure. Some people might think when they listen to me that certain phrases might sound like uh, something he would say, but I usually left the imitation to others. What did you learn from him? Did you learn from osmosis? Was he actively teaching you? Uh, What was the learning process like of the craft? It it was more from osmosis and just observing and and being around. Um, He wouldn't really ever sit me down and give me a lesson, so to speak. Um, I did travel around a lot and that was one of the huge advantages you know people ask me what it was like growing up with him and he was away so much and in new york city every day doing the six and eleven o'clock news and then hustling off to a game in between it, it was 99.9 percent positive for me it was uh it was tremendous i didn't know anything different you know a lot of my friends might have had parents who worked nine to five and were home every night for dinner but um to me as a youngster growing up i, I couldn't have asked for anything uh, really more fun to be able to go to so many games, Nixon Rangers games at Madison Square Garden and travel around on road trips to Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, Los Angeles. And then when I was old enough, around 15 or 16, I would start filling in as a statistician when uh, the, the usual guys would have a conflict and wound up doing stats for four years during college on, on the Knicks telecast with him and, and Rangers radio and NFL games on NBC and in 88, when I was 20, uh, I was able to go to the Olympics in Seoul, Korea, and work as a, a researcher uh, for the boxing, uh, which he worked with Ferdy Pacheco. So, um, again, a lot of it was just by observing and, and sitting next to him in the booth and osmosis. And the number one thing I learned was preparation, the amount of time you have to put in. It was a lot different back then. There was no Internet. So it was mostly newspapers, weekly publications, information that was sent to you by the various teams and leagues. But, uh, you know, I remember so many nights, Saturday nights in hotels on the road for NFL football games where, uh, you know, he would be up until midnight, one in the morning, just finishing up that last bit of prep. And, um, again, when, when I speak to youngsters and, and broadcasting camps, I always say that's the number one thing that I learned was, was the preparation and how much time you have to put in. Watching a video on YouTube of you being interviewed, one of them, you brought your charts to it, and I realized they were handwritten it was a little bit of an older video do you still handwrite your boards and if so why i do and i feel very strongly about that and i know a number of folks in my profession do not and go the computerized route some people have others do their boards for them which i totally disagree with i feel like a you have to do your own work and the reason i still do it by hand and believe me i do a lot on the computer i'm on my ipad all day uh, reading and researching, but as far as preparing the actual charts, especially for football, where there are so many players, and I might have a team week 15 that I haven't had all season, I just think that when you write it, uh, you remember it so much better. It's ingrained in your head. Um, I've tried the other way. Uh, for a couple of years, I used sort of a hybrid system where um, I would input the names uh, on the computer and some of the other biographical information, the height, weight, college, 
et cetera. But um, I didn't really like it. I, I felt like I wasn't, it wasn't sinking in as much. And sometimes you feel like uh, it's, it's, it does take too much time. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll even, even if I have a team two weeks in a row in the NFL, I'll make a new chart, a new board, uh, because things change. You know, there are, there are injuries, there are position changes, there are new stats coming off the game the previous week. So you probably are uh, taking a couple of hours that maybe if you do it on the computer you would save. But to me it's just so important to write it down and, and remember things while you're writing it. What is some of the information besides the obvious, the height, weight, college, etc., that you put on your boards that you want to be able to find quickly? Well, in, in football, for example, it's all the things you mentioned. It's the name, number, height, weight, college, how many years in the league. I'll also put down draft information, uh, statistics, career statistics, season statistics, and then other little nuggets. Um, for a football game, and I'm sure you've talked to a number of other guys, and it would be the same thing for them. But for me, it really starts on Monday morning for a Sunday game. You wind up watching both teams' previous games. Sometimes you go back even further. And that's changed as well. Uh, you know, I talked about how the preparation has changed. When I started with Fox in 94, they would send us VHS tapes of each team's previous game. You wouldn't get that until Wednesday because they had to make the copies on Monday, and then they'd send it out on Tuesday, and you'd get it on Wednesday. Then it turned into DVDs, and then for the last couple of years, I would say eight to ten years, with DirecTV, I can tape the games at home, watch them first thing Monday morning. Uh, there's also the NFL Game Pass where you can watch games at any time. So you get a, a two-day head start compared to uh, back in 94, the first year of the NFL on Fox. I also try to read every article that's written, and obviously you can't read every article because there's so much out there, but... Um, keep up with everything going on in the two cities. You receive the, the press release and, and statistical information from the teams, from the league. So Monday through Thursday, you're really on your own, uh, either at home or if I have another game, basketball or hockey, I'm traveling, doing some of the work on the plane in hotel rooms. But it's really a week-long process. It's probably 40 or 50 hours preparing the charts, watching the games, pouring through the stats. Uh, Friday morning, we usually travel in, sometimes Thursday night, depending on the destination. I'll meet up with my partner, Rondé Barber, uh, our sideline reporter, and, and we had sort of a rotating cast last year, producer, director, and, and we'll go to the home team facility and we'll watch practice Friday morning, and then we'll sit down and talk to four or five players and coaches, and we'll do the same thing with the visiting team Saturday at their hotel uh, when they arrive. So a lot of that information that, that we also gain from these off-camera interviews with the players and coaches, that'll wind up on my board as well. At the beginning of the week, you have a stack, you know, probably a foot or two high of all this information you want to go through, and a lot of it's on the iPad, so you're not necessarily printing out as as much on paper anymore. But by the end of the week, I like to have all of my information on my two charts and then one other uh, folder where I have some general information about the teams and some other notes and nuggets on there as well. In 1990, you got your first post-college big break that I could tell anyway uh, with the Baltimore Skipjacks. Uh, tell us how you landed that position. You know, Was there a connection that got you there? Was it a pure application process? Walk us through uh, that time in your life. Well, I graduated from college in, in May of 90, and I attended NYU. We had a Division three sports program, so... Uh, I was able to do radio right from the start, 
calling men's and women's basketball games. And I'm often asked why NYU and, and not a Syracuse or a Fordham or a Northwestern, which are so renowned for their broadcasting programs. And, and by the way, I have a daughter at Syracuse now, so I feel like an honorary alum as I send in the tuition payments. Um, but a couple of things. When I was choosing colleges back in the mid-'80s, Number one, I was such a hockey fan. I, I did not want to be away from the NHL for four years, so I wanted to stay close, either New York, Boston, or Washington. That actually went into my decision-making process. And I also had heard so many stories about some of the other schools, um, the great broadcasting schools, where you might not be able to get on the air until your junior or senior year. At NYU, it was a smaller sports program, a uh, smaller program at the radio station, WNYU, so there were only six of us who wanted to do sports on radio, and we all became really good friends. I'm still friends with all of them to this day. But I had the opportunity, as did the other folks, to do play-by-play, do color, get involved in all aspects of the broadcast right from our freshman year on. So uh, that was a, a big reason why I chose NYU. Um, also did some internships during that time. Uh, wound up very fortunate uh, to get hired to do some fill-in work on, on New York Islanders radio on the pre- and post-game show. And that led to actually doing four games of play-by-play for the Islanders during my senior year of college, 89-90. So my first actual NHL broadcast was in Winnipeg, December of 1989, while I was still in college. And uh, that was a huge break. Wound up using that tape, sent that tape around to various minor league teams Heard there was an opening in Baltimore. There were the Washington Capitals affiliate at the time, and a couple of friends mentioned there was an opening there. And uh, received a phone call, flew in to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, in uh, early June 1990 for an interview with with the late Tom Ebright, who was the owner of the Skipjacks, and his wife Joyce, and a couple of the folks from the front office. And um, actually wound up going out to the NHL draft in Vancouver later in June of 1990. It was the uh, Yaramir Yager draft. He was selected fifth overall by the Pittsburgh Penguins and no cell phones back then. So while I was in Vancouver, I remember constantly calling my home answering machine uh, during that week in Vancouver just to see if I had any messages. And sure enough, late in the week, there was a message that, that I was hired by the Skipjacks about a month after college ended. And again, a huge break. Uh, I know that 50 or 60 people had sent in tapes and uh, maybe the fact that I had done an NHL game stood out to them, the Islanders Winnipeg game that I had sent in, and uh, wound up moving to Baltimore a week later. Uh, again, just a month out of college, fil- uh, filled up the car with my clothing and uh, drove down to Baltimore, Maryland, and worked. Even though my main gig was play-by-play, at that level you work in the team office doing public relations, marketing, and sales. So spent the entire summer doing that, and then. October of 1990 was, was our first game, and I wouldn't trade in those two years for anything. It, it was such a great experience, tremendous people, uh, getting the opportunity to work the 80 games a year, get the reps. Uh, my roommate on the road during road trips was actually Barry Trotz, who's now the head coach of the New York Islanders, who led the Washington Capitals to the Stanley Cup last year. He was our assistant coach at the time. I was 22. He was 26 or 27 to save money. At the minor league level, they had the broadcaster room with the assistant coach. So uh, Barry was my roommate for two years and, again, wouldn't trade in those those seasons for anything. What is a skipjack? <laughs> it was a type of a boat, from what I remember. 
And the team in Baltimore had been called the Clippers. They were the Pittsburgh Penguins affiliate. And then when they moved to the Capitals, they renamed the team the Skipjacks. And I still have, I still have a lot of Skipjacks paraphernalia. I have a jersey. I have some sweatpants. I have a mug. So even though I left there 27 years ago, the Skipjacks have always been a big part of my life. Your next really big break was with the the Washington Capitals, 92 through 95. But I want to jump ahead to uh, getting your first network break, doing the NFL on Fox in 1994. How did that come about? Well, you're right. In 92, I was hired by Home Team Sports. Uh, Jody Shapiro and Bill Brown were the executives there. And I had gotten to know them during my two years with the Skipjacks. We were in such close proximity to Washington and Again, our team was the Capitals affiliate, so I, I got to uh, form relationships with a lot of people down there and very fortunate to uh, get hired by Home Team Sports in 92. And then fast forward uh, to late 93, December 93, I was actually sitting with Bill Brown, who was one of my bosses at, at HTS. We were at a Capitals home game in uh, Landover, Maryland, December 93, and the television was on in the press room. and. We saw uh, the story about Fox and Rupert Murdoch gaining the rights to the NFC away from CBS, and it was a huge story in the sports world, the sports TV world at the time, because CBS had had the rights for over 30 years. At the moment, I had no inclination that, that I would even be considered for a job with Fox. You know, never in my wildest dreams did I expect to do NFL play-by-play. Um, especially at the age of 26 uh, on a network. None of us did. Um, you know, when you watched NFL games on CBS or NBC, it was, it was the veteran announcers, the, the Dick Enbergs, uh, you know, the, the Pat Summerall's, the Dick Stocktons. So Fox winds up getting the NFL, the NFC rights. And over the next couple of months, um, I had an agent at the time, and, um, you know, he had heard that they might want to audition some younger play-by-play announcers and color analysts. And, uh, sure enough, I was invited to come out in, in, in March of 94 uh, to do an audition. And it turned out that the Fox executives decided that uh, they wanted to hire a combination of the veterans from CBS and then a bunch of young broadcasters. And they went with Pat Summerall, of course, and John Madden on their A crew. They hired Dick Stockton and Matt Millen from CBS on their B crew. And Kevin Harlan, who was uh, a little bit older, uh, than I was at the time. He had done Kansas City Chiefs radio for a number of years. So he and Jerry Glanville were hired as the third crew. So I go out for an audition, audition with James Lofton, who did not get hired by Fox at the time, but eventually wound up at NBC, now at CBS. And uh, he was great. We had dinner the night before, and he was a guy that I watched as a player. And uh, we, we had fun doing that audition. Uh, met Joe Buck and Tim Green for the first time that day. They had just auditioned prior to us. And it turns out Fox wound up hiring myself, Joe Buck, and Tom Brenneman on the play-by-play side. I was 26, Joe was 25, Tom was a couple of years older. Very proud to say that all three of us are still at Fox 25 years later. And they also hired uh, a bunch of young analysts, Ron Pitts, who I worked with the first year, Anthony Munoz, who had just retired. So, uh, again, they went with the veterans and the youngsters. And uh, here we are 25 years later. But such... I mean, such a huge break. Never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined doing NFL football, like I said, especially at that young age. And, um, you know, thanks to the Fox execs, David Hill, Ed Gorin, George Krieger, uh, Larry Jones, uh, 
here we are 25 years later, over 400 NFL games later. It's incredible to think uh, how the time's gone by so quickly. I think one of the most unfair narratives in sportscasting is all the criticism that goes towards Joe Buck and the nepotism aspects and all that, which I'm sure you're well-versed on. But I find it interesting that you and Tom Brenneman both had famous sportscasting fathers as well, but at least from my point of view, have never gotten the same vitriol that Joe Buck, for whatever reason, gets. Do you have any reason why? You know, I think part of it's probably jealousy. There are a lot of people out there that would love to be doing what we're doing. Um, you know, sure, you know, our, our last names may have helped us a little bit as far as getting that initial audition and the un- initial interview. But once you're hired, if you don't do a good job, they're going to get rid of you. So I think we all proved ourselves at a young age. And again, it's been 25 years. So um, if, if you weren't getting the job done, you, you wouldn't still be there. You know, with Joe, he's obviously the face of, of Fox Sports uh, as the number one play-by-play guy on the NFL and, and Major League Baseball and golf. And, you know, similar to stories that I remember hearing from Bob Costas and Al Michaels back in the 80s and early 90s, when they're doing a national event, a Super Bowl or a World Series, um, they, they would hear it from both sides. I remember Bob and Al talking about letters they would get, you know, 500 letters from the fans of one team and 500 letters from the fans of the other team. Um, I'm sure it's the same with Joe, but now it's social media. People can get to you a lot quicker. But you know you're doing a good job if people are complaining about you on both sides. How deeply do you do you read into the comments and the, the letters and the criticism? Do you just ignore them, or do you – I've talked to some people who look at them, and if they're written politely and have legitimate le- legitimate tidbits, they'll, they'll, they'll consider them. Do you even look at it? I look at it occasionally, and, and of course, friends and family members look at it as well. And it's all part of the business. And I, I think you have to remind yourself that it's such a small percentage of of people that are watching that that do make a negative comment. Um, I also think people that like you don't necessarily uh, point that out on social media. Once in a while, they do, but you tend to get a little more more of the negative folks who will participate in that. But, again, if I'm working an NFL game, there are millions and millions of people watching. So if you get eight negative comments, it's really not a big deal. And, and the bottom line is, as long as it's not your boss who's, who's you know, petting those comments, then I think you're okay. But you're right. Occasionally you will get um, – sometimes I'll, I'll check the phone at halftime or between periods of a game, and somebody might make a, a, a great suggestion, something that you might not have mentioned or thought of, and uh, I've been known to use that on the broadcast at times um, if somebody points it out on social media or in a text. Do you have an example of that happening? Um, you know, I can't think of one right now off the top of my head, but usually it would be some kind of a historical note that has to uh, you know, do with something that happened in your game. I have conflicting information on my research here. In the Bastion of Integrity Wikipedia, it says that you did four different sports in four different days. When I tried to confirm that with an actual news source, the closest I could find is four sports in nine days. Uh, either way, it's a, it's quite a marathon. What is the most sports you've done in the least amount of days? Well, the, the four and four is accurate, but it comes with a bit of an asterisk because I did not do play-by-play on the baseball game. I did the post-game interviews. So 
that was a stretch in October of 2010, uh, where I worked a, a football game in Pittsburgh, Minnesota, Pittsburgh. It was during Brett Favre's season with the Vikings, a one o'clock game. Uh, flew back to New York and did the post-game interviews following the Yankees Angels American League Championship Series Game Six. Yankees won the series that night, so I did the interviews in the locker room in the clubhouse post-game. Uh, did a hockey game the next day on Monday and a basketball game on Tuesday. Or no, it was Wednesday. There was an off day in there, which made it a four-day stretch. So um, Sunday was football, baseball interviews, Monday hockey, Wednesday NBA games. So that was four and four days, play-by-play on three of the four events. Um, but aside from that, as far as play-by-play, your four and nine days sounds accurate. It's probably happened on a couple of occasions. It can really only happen in October um, when I'm involved in the NFL uh, the baseball playoffs, and then uh, hockey and basketball obviously starting up. So it could happen again this October. We'll see. But uh, those are always fun times. You know, people ask, when do you do the work? How do you do the preparation for all those games? I actually, for some reason, I thrive during those situations. Um, maybe it's the adrenaline. At the Olympics, I've done uh, the last five Winter Olympics, men's and women's hockey, and, you know, we'll have two games a day there. So it's it's turns out to be 17 or 18 games in like a 12-day stretch. But that's one sport, but it's also 18 different teams. So um, there's a lot of studying and preparation that, that's involved in that as well. But uh, during those times in October, it's just so much fun uh, to bounce from different sport to sport. I love the variety, and you just have to be organized and get your work done well in advance, and you're good to go. I've always found, interestingly, just in response to that, that – it's easier to be focused when you know you have to. If you know you have you know, two weeks to get this done, you might take the first three or four days and be like, ah, I can do that next week. When you're, I have four games in four days, you bet, I, better, I better work ahead. Do you find that to be the case or, or not so Absolutely. much? Um, you know, you wind up putting a lot more time into it in the days and weeks leading up to those events. Uh, you know, it's funny, the summer's a lot quieter. I, I have some baseball with Fox and some boxing and preseason football in August. But I just had a stretch of nearly three weeks off, which is which is very unusual. And and during that time, uh, it, it was very relaxing and nice to have uh, uh, that time span. And actually took a vacation with my wife over to Italy, which uh, was again great to get away for a week. And we were celebrating a big birthday of hers. But uh, during the trip, I was thinking, wow, there are other three week stretches during the year where I might have uh, fourteen or fifteen events during the same time period. What what else do you do when you have a three week time a three week stretch where you don't have anything? What do you do during that time besides go on a vacation to Italy? Well, there aren't too many three week stretches uh, during the year. There there really aren't too many one week stretches without an event. So uh, most of the time, I'm usually preparing for that next event. But um, you know, just get organized. Um, newspapers and magazines and mail pile up in the office. So in the summer. I always uh, definitely organize things and um, obviously spend time with the family and uh, try to catch up. You know, I don't, we don't get the chance to have lunch or dinners with a lot of uh, friends during the year, you know, from September through May, really, because I'm working so many nights and weekends. So I uh, wind up catching up on a lot of dinners during the summer months as well. I want to go back to doing numerous sports, numerous games in a short period of time. 
And it sounded like, in your example, most of them were in New York, so maybe this wasn't an issue. But were there ever – have you ever had something like that where there were logistical issues where you – I mean, do you physically have to spend X amount of time on a flight getting somewhere to somewhere? If there's a delay, no amount of preparation or change can, can fix that. How do you handle the logistics in a situation like that? Well, knock on wood, fortunately I've never missed a game due, due to travel issues. Um, you know, in a perfect world, you're always there the day before. And with football, we usually go in on Friday, like I said. Um, for, for baseball, I go in Friday for a Saturday game. For hockey and basketball, I'm usually there the night before. But there are probably eight or ten occasions during the year uh, where I do have to travel on the day of a game. And it's always a little nerve-wracking, um, especially during the winter months. But um, if it's a close city, you know, I'll, uh, I'll know in the back of my mind that driving or taking a train is always an option. And I've gotten to learn a lot of the tricks of the travel trade. You know, I'll, I'll take, even though I hate getting up at four or five in the morning, uh, especially with a game that night, if it's a travel situation in the winter where it could get a little dicey, I'll make sure I take the first flight out. I'll always have two or three backups. So um, it's never happened. Like I said, I've had a couple of uh, crazy scenarios. Last year I had a, and, and I was flying the day before a basketball game in New Orleans and it was clear. The weather was fine. And, and in the hour uh, after I left my house to head to the airport, um, unexpected snow, which uh, the forecasters had said would start that night, started about six hours early. So it delayed everything, and, and flights were getting canceled left and right. And uh wound up getting a, a flight to Atlanta and had to take a car service six hours to New Orleans overnight, basically, just to make sure I would get there because all the flights sounded like they were sold out the next day. Um, I had a situation coming home from St. Louis about seven or eight years ago where a snowstorm hit the East Coast, and somehow I got on the last flight out, wound up landing in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and had a had a battle through a snowstorm to get home to New Jersey. So there, there have been some uh, you know crazy travel issues through the years, but again, like I said, knock on wood, I've uh, never missed a game in, in the 29 years due to travel. Going to the New York Rangers was your next stop along your career path, and obviously you're, you're still there. You took over immediately after your dad moved on from there. Was there ever any consideration of, of not following in his footsteps just because, A, I mean, you're following a legend, but that legend also haps, happens to be your father. It, it, what was the difficult part of that situation, and was there any hesitation in the decision-making? To be honest, the, the only difficult part in my mind was, was leaving Washington. Um, doing the Rangers was, was always a dream growing up in New York, uh, going to so many games. Um, however, at the time, I had such a great deal in Washington, a great situation, loved it down there, loved the people I was working for, uh, was doing TV for the Capitals, uh, for the home games. It was a split package, so I did the home games, another channel, different broadcasters did the away games. I also was filling in on Bullets basketball and Orioles baseball, so I, I really had a great situation in D.C. and, and felt real torn about leaving. Um, still had time left on a contract, and, and they were great about that, as it turns out, but um, really felt like they had given me such a big opportunity. So the, the only tough part, again, about the decision was, was to leave uh, the job and the, and the people in Washington, um, but wound up uh, moving back up to New York and, uh, we actually overlapped for a year. He was still doing some of the Ranger games 
the way the opening came about was was actually Howie Rose, who was doing the Ranger radio at the time and had the iconic uh, Matt Toe call back in 94 in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Final. He was doing the majority of the Ranger games on radio, probably probably 55 or 60. My father was still working. He had been the main voice of the Rangers on radio for many years, but due to his other obligations, in particular with the Knicks on the TV side, he was only doing about 20 Ranger games a year. So Howie actually left to take the Mets and Islanders TV job in the summer of 95 with Sports Channel. So I was offered uh, the majority of the Ranger games. And for that one year, we did overlap. He still did about 15 or 20 of the games, but uh, there was no hesitation as far as uh, that part of it is concerned. It was more uh, leaving a great job and great people in Washington. I'm glad you brought up Howie Rose. He's been on this show before, and he, he told the story of his Matteau, Matteau, Matteau goal call, and that immediately after he said it, he was concerned because it was such a a quick goal that had a little deflection, and it was tough to see exactly who it was. He was afraid he was going to be wrong for eternity. He obviously was right in hindsight. But have you had moments where you've had a big goal call where you want to match the intensity of the moment, but it's so hard to see who got it in at, at certain points. How do you handle those those moments? Well, it does happen, especially in hockey. Uh, sometimes the broadcast booths are pretty far from the ice, and there could be deflect, deflections that you might not see, redirects. Did it go off the stick of the offensive player? Did it go off the defenseman? So, Fortunately, I've never had any huge goals affected like that. But sure, over the course of a hockey season, when you're calling hundreds and hundreds of goals, there are going to be some that aren't so clear. Um, but getting back to Howie, uh, he was he was certainly a mentor of mine. Um, I had met Howie uh, while I was growing up, and uh, I actually worked as his associate producer on Mets Extra when uh, WFAN first started in '87. It was actually WHN prior to that, and during during my college years, aside from uh, working at the NYU radio station and playing club hockey at NYU and doing the stats at the Nick and Ranger games, uh, Howie hired me as his associate producer on Mets Extra. So I would show up at Chase Stadium at uh, 4 o'clock. Howie would do the pregame show, and we'd watch the game together. And then one of my jobs when the game ended was to go down to the locker room, and there was a headset mounted on the wall just inside the Mets clubhouse. And I had to hand that to the player that was brought over by the public relations staff uh, for the post-game interview. And this was obviously during the iconic years, the year after they won the World Series. So it was Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, et cetera. So uh, always considered Howie a mentor, learned so much from him, and got to sit next to him for three seasons uh, watching, watching Mets baseball and just learned so much from Howie during those years. When you worked at WFAN, did you ever – tell one of the powers that be, hey, this isn't that original. I had the first sports <laughs> radio station at Thanksgiving dinner well, at my house. Well, I, I never really worked at the station. Uh, it, it, when I was hired by Howie, it was really only working at the home games. So I did get to know some of the folks there, um, but never worked <laughs> never worked at the studio. Uh, became good friends at the time with Eric Spitz, who was a young producer at WFAN, and we would communicate during – the Mets extra pre and post game shows over a computer. It was really the first, it, it was an early version of instant messaging. And that's how they would let us know who the callers were, who were, who were phoning into Howie's show. And uh, Eric was rooming with Steve Levy at the time, uh, who was working at WFAN before uh, heading up to ESPN in Bristol. So we became good friends back then, all thanks to, uh, to my time with Howie Rose at Mets extra. 
How many times have you called games simultaneously the same game as your dad on the same air, where one of you is play-by-play and one of you plays analyst? Well, we, we've done the same game about five or six times uh, for different networks where we're both doing play-by-play. Um, it happened with hockey on a couple of occasions during the 94 Stanley Cup final. He did some of the games for the Rangers. I was working some of the game, or all of the games in that series for NHL radio at the time. And then while I was with the Capitals, there were a couple of Capitals-Rangers games. And then once I started doing uh, Knicks games on MSG, uh, I do about 20 to 25 games a year. Uh, when Mike Breen has a national assignment. So there were a couple of occasions when he was working for the Nets on the Yes Network uh, where we would do the same game as well. So that's probably happened five or six times. As far as working with each other, play-by-play and color, it happened twice. Uh, during my college years, I brought him in to do color on an NYU basketball game. And then uh, during that year, 95-96 or 96-97, we overlapped two years on the Rangers. Uh, I think I said it was one earlier. But during the playoffs, one of those years, uh, Sal Messina, who was his longtime color analyst and then was my color analyst for seven years, lost his voice during a playoff game, so I wound up coming in and doing color with him for a couple of periods. What was that like for you? Was it a highlight? Was, did it just feel weird uh, because you're so used to being in the play-by-play chair? What was the experience like? Well, it was fun. I was in the stands watching the game and, and wound up getting called in when Sal lost his voice. It, it was weird because I'm not really a color analyst, so uh, it was so much different from uh, play-by-play, obviously, but was able to get through it. The weird thing was we also worked together on two or three NFL games when he was doing Westwood One uh, with Boomer Esiason on Monday nights. and Back in 2005, during the hockey lockout, I was asked to do the sideline reporting for two or three of those games. So that that was strange, you know, when he would throw it down to me on the field and then I would throw it back upstairs. I didn't really know what to call him, so that that was kind of weird at the time. <laughs> what did you end up calling? Did you say back to you, Marv? Did you say? I, I didn't really say anything. I, I kind of <laughs> just said uh, back upstairs to you guys. I think <laughs> it just felt weird to call him anything at that point. <laughs> That's I never would have thought of that. Your Olympics experience, I know you've done a ton of hockey. You mentioned you were at the 88 games. You were at the 1992 games with the Dream Team. What were some of your highlights covering the Olympics? Well, again, real fortunate uh, to have been at eight Olympics so far, Uh, six on the play-by-play side, two behind the scenes, 88, 20 years old, doing research uh, at the boxing venue, 92 uh, was there as the statistician, front row for the Dream Team, so that was obviously a tremendous experience watching those games up close. Uh, 2002, ironically, I uh, got called about a week before the Salt Lake Olympics. Uh, the great Mike Emmerich had to pull out uh, due to a family issue. So one week before uh, the Olympic Games, I got a call to, to do men's and women's ice hockey. And, uh, you know, by virtue of, of that phone call, I've now worked six Olympics for NBC. So just uh, so fortunate to be a part of it. Um, five Winter Olympics leading up to uh, 2018 in Pyeongchang, where I, I called the women's gold medal game, uh, which is definitely one of the, I would put it in my top five events that I've worked all time when the U.S. women won the gold medal in the shootout over Canada uh, last February. Um, also called track and field for NBC at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, which, again, was a huge challenge. I had never done track and field before, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, But getting back to 2002, so I get the call a week before 
Uh, Gary Thorne was the other hockey announcer. I wound up doing a bunch of men's games and most of the women's games. And one of the first games I had was the U.S. against China in women's ice hockey. And uh, again, I was cramming uh, for the week leading up to the Olympics and wound up getting the rosters. And, and the U.S. had won the gold medal in 98. I watched the game. So I was familiar with most of the players on the U.S. team. China, as you can imagine, uh, the names were somewhat difficult. They gave us a pronunciation guide about five minutes before the opening face-off. But the U.S. was so advanced in women's hockey compared to China at the time that uh, the final score was something like 12 or 13 nothing, and China hardly ever had the puck. So that was actually a good thing from a play-by-play standpoint. Their goalie was nicknamed the Great Wall. So I just remember throughout the first period, and another save by the Great Wall, and another save by the Great Wall. So uh, that was one of the first games back in the... 2002 Salt Lake Olympics wound up in Torino in 2006, Vancouver in 2010, uh, Sochi in 2014, and then Pyeongchang. So uh, tremendous memories and so lucky to be a part of it. When you're there, obviously, I know in one of them you did like 20 games in 15 days, so you have an incredibly busy schedule. But do you get to take any time to go out and experience the culture of these different cities and do some sightseeing, try the food, or is it all business all the time? During the Winter Olympics, with with the volume of the hockey schedule, um, it's pretty much all work all the time. Um, Obviously, you have meals, you eat, but for the most part, you're working two games a day, also trying to go to practices and find coaches, uh, you know, whose games you might have the next day. So I did sneak out uh, twice to attend curling, as I mentioned earlier, once in Sochi and once, I think, in Pyeongchang. In Rio, uh, my schedule was a bit lighter as far as work. Um, I was on the second track and field crew, so we were on from 9 in the morning until 1 in the afternoon every day. So uh, my family was with me. We did get to go to events uh, many of those days in the afternoon, and then I would head back to the hotel and watch the evening session of the track and field on TV at night. Uh, But in Rio, we definitely did get to about five or six events uh, while I wasn't working. You're in the middle of, you said, about three weeks off, and I appreciate you so much taking some time to chat with me during your off time. But one of the things that I've found for myself is that when I grew up, uh, up through college, I was just watching sports all the time. Whatever the game was on at that moment, I would watch it. Now, when I have a busy week, and I'm doing sports all the time. Sometimes I want to read a book or watch a movie. And on my free time, I don't want to watch more sports. Do you have that? Do you? How much sports do you watch when you have your your three weeks off? Well, well, the three weeks off was earlier in the month, late June, early July. Uh, I was back to work with the boxing on Saturday, and I have a baseball game this Saturday. So now I'm back into the swing of things. But when I'm home, if I'm in the home office uh, where I am now. There's usually a sporting event on the TV in the background. I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, keeping my eyes glued to every second, but I'll be listening to it, listening to the announcers while I'm doing some other work or on the computer, on the iPad, preparing charts. Um, I would love to read more books than I, than I have the opportunity to, but, you know, no matter what the season it is, football, hockey, basketball, baseball, boxing, I'm always reading so much. Um, still get five newspapers delivered to the house every day, so I'm still old school in that respect. I'm also on the Internet, on the iPad for hours and hours every day. So there's so much reading. I probably read the equivalent of of 20 books a week uh, when you add up 
everything that I'm reading, uh, you know, most of it work related, um, but don't have too much of an opportunity to read books. Although I wish I did, like I said, um, try to catch up on movies when I can did watch a bunch on the, on the long plane rides to and from Italy. So, uh, you know, that's always relaxing, but, uh, yeah, there's usually some kind of a sporting event on, on the TV, even if not keeping my eyes on it for the entire time. We touched on working with analysts earlier in the show when we were talking about Boston, and you've worked with over 300 analysts is what I read somewhere. Building chemistry with different analysts can be challenging if you don't have that chemistry naturally. How do you make it work with that many different analysts? And has there ever been a case where it hasn't worked? Not really. I, I really can't think of any analyst that I did not enjoy working with, and, and I have worked with probably 250 to 300. And again, so fortunate to work with some of the best in every sport, you know, whether Tim McCarver on baseball, uh, John Davidson, Eddie Olchek, Pierre Maguire, Joe Micheletti, Dave Maloney on hockey, Clyde Fraser on basketball, and uh, more than I can name on the football side uh, Troy Aikman, Terry Bradshaw, Howie Long. Uh, Dan Fouts, uh, my longtime partners at Fox, Moose Johnston and Tony Saragusa, now Rondé Barber. Um, third year with Rondé, really looking forward to that. Uh, hopefully he gets into the Hall of Fame next year as well because he deserves it. Uh, when I think back to the Moose and Goose years, we were together for eight years and had the opportunity to work five divisional playoff games, uh, one up in Green Bay, which was uh, so much fun in the snow against Seattle back in, in January 2008. Uh, we did the 49ers-Saints game in January 2012, back and forth, four touchdowns in the last four minutes. Drew Brees, Alex Smith, that game was nominated for a National Emmy. Um, you know, I, I think back to those eight seasons with, with such great memories. Uh, Moose up in the booth, Goose down on the field. His mic was open at all times. Um, he couldn't see us, we couldn't see him, but hardly ever stepped on each other with, with comments and um, we just had so much fun, both both on and off the field, in and out of the booth. And I think spending all the time together on Fridays and Saturdays during football has a lot to do with it. Similar uh, with Rondé now, with my former partners, Ron Pitts, Anthony Munoz, Tim Green, Brian Baldinger. You really wind up as a family. You spend more time during the four months of the NFL season with your crew than you do with your family because you're with them Friday morning through Sunday night. You're having meals together. You're in meetings. You're going to practices. And uh, um, you know, hopefully you like each other because you're spending a lot of time together for four months. I ask everybody on the podcast this, sh- share a broadcast horror story. And when I say that, it's the moments where everything goes wrong in a call or with your equipment or with your location, or it could be literally anything involved with your broadcast that leads to challenging or impossible conditions that mortifies you at the moment but you laugh at now right well obviously if there's a technical issue with cameras or microphones uh you know that that's never good uh to me i think back to a rangers game in los angeles in the late 90s uh when i got the hiccups on the air (laughs) i'm calling hockey on the radio so you don't have much downtime um and you can't really control You, you feel the hiccups start to come and uh uh, sometimes you can't reach for the cough button quick enough. So that would be one. Um, you know, the other one is from a play-by-play standpoint, you really can't leave the booth uh, to go to the men's room or the ladies' room um, during a game. 
you know, hockey, basketball, you have halftime between periods, halftime in football. Baseball, there's about a minute and a half to two-minute commercial break. So if the men's room is close, you can get there and get back. I worked a 20-inning game in St. Louis, Mets-Cardinals, back in April of 2010. Never went to the bathroom once. It was a six-and-a-half-hour game. Could have gone. It was close enough. Never felt like I had to go. Never went once. You didn't pull... Might be my, might be my claim to fame. You didn't pull the, the Joe Buck that he shared in his book where he just peed in a trash can in the middle of a touchdown call? You know, I, I've heard stories about his father and some of the old-time broadcasters having to do that because some of their booths were nowhere near a restroom. But, uh, no, haven't, haven't had to do that yet. Um, felt like I had to do it a couple of weeks ago during a boxing match when we were on the air for three hours straight. Uh, fortunately, this past Saturday, we were on the air for six hours. We had a break after the first two hours, so I was able to run out. Tell us a Wayne Gretzky story or two, because you covered him when he played for the Rangers, one of the most transcendent athletes in any sport of all time. I imagine you have some just stories of what it was like covering somebody at that level. And had the opportunity to travel on the, on the team plane for three years uh, and sat pretty close to Wayne Gretzky. Um, Wayne Gretzky and Brett Favre, the two athletes that I've had the pleasure of, of covering and spending a lot of time with, who are the most down-to-earth, you would never know that they were superstars in their sport. If they were in the room with you, you would just think they were a regular guy. Um, Wayne Gretzky also, I thought, could have hosted a sports talk show. He was so knowledgeable about all sports and uh, really life in general, but uh, just one of the nicest people uh, that you would ever want to meet. Um, I mentioned earlier that I played club hockey at NYU. Wasn't very good. Didn't score too many goals. Uh, did play for a couple of years. Uh, the Rangers in Madison Square Garden hosted a charity hockey game for the Christopher Reeve Foundation. And a lot of celebrities, actors, athletes uh, would play in this game. And they invited some of the broadcasters as well. And there were about 10,000 people in the stands at Madison Square Garden. This is in the late 90s. And I actually scored a goal in one of the games. And the entire Ranger team was there. And I was walking up through the stands after the game, ran into Wayne Gretzky, and he said to me, nice goal. So that might have been one of my biggest accomplishments in sports, <laughs> getting complimented on a goal by Wayne Gretzky. Um, Brett Favre, I mentioned, uh, when we have these sit-down meetings with players, whenever we had a Packers game, you know, you might have other players – throughout the league who have other responsibilities can only sit with you for five or 10 minutes. Some guys aren't too comfortable, uh, might not want to do it at all. Brett would sit with us every time. And I probably had 20 or 25 of these meetings with Brett Favre. He was sitting there for an hour. Um, like he had nowhere else to go, nowhere else to be. And a lot of it wasn't even football. He'd be talking about hunting and fishing and telling stories about his family, but you never got the idea that he wanted to be anywhere else. He would have sat there all day if, if uh, if they didn't have practice or team meetings. So uh, Wayne Gretzky and Brett Favre, uh, by far, the two uh, most gentlemanly um, superstars uh, and, and regular people that I've ever been around. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to or watch uh, when you are watching a game when you have some downtime? Well, you know, as a youngster, aside from family members, um, I would try to catch every broadcast that I could and we didn't have cable TV until I was 18 so I was listening to a lot of radio um, so again you know during my teenage years guys like Howie Rose who was doing hockey at the time 
uh, Sam Rosen, Mike Emmerich on the hockey side. I would listen to baseball on the radio. So all the Mets and Yankees announcers and certainly the national guys, Al Michaels, uh, to me, one of the best of all time. Uh, but these days, you know, if, if you're asking about uh, play-by-play guys in, in my generation, um, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out, but always enjoy listening to Joe Buck, whether it's baseball or football. I think Ian Eagle's one of the best guys out there. Uh, mentioned Kevin Harlan earlier. So, uh, you know, again, don't want to leave anybody out of the conversation. But and, and I'm listening to a lot of guys. You know, we have to watch the football games every week. Like I said, watch the previous teams. I'm watching the other sports all the time. Uh, Mike Breen, who is a colleague of mine at MSG, always enjoy listening to Mike on basketball. So um, really try to check out everybody. And, and you, you know, you have guys that you like and that you don't like as much. Uh, sometimes you might not like the style of, of a certain play-by-play announcer. Um, I think Gary Cohn's another guy on baseball here in New York that I always enjoy listening to. And sometimes you steal, you know, you might steal whether it's something style-related or 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 the way um, a certain play-by-play announcer makes a call. Uh, Michael Kay, also with the Yankees, um, you know, in the summer, always enjoy listening to those guys as well. There are two more stories that I just want to just mention and have you kind of tell and bring up and share because they didn't really fit into the rest of the interview, but I think they're interesting. And one of them is... Uh, years ago doing a fake interview with the current New York mayor and now presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg after a Sox-Yankees game seven. Just tell that story and how it came about and how your your impression of it has changed now that you know like how far he's risen. Well, you've really done your research, Logan. Um that this is a memorable story that I that I tell often. Um, 2003 and four, I was asked to do the clubhouse post game interviews. Uh, I mentioned 2010 earlier, but also did it in 2003 and four. Uh, the two Yankee Red Sox ALCS, the iconic series. So 03 was the Aaron Boone game, the home run and extra innings uh, to put the Yankees in the World Series. So I was uh, scheduled to do the post game interviews in the clubhouse. So I went down in the ninth inning because I had to be ready to go into whichever uh, team won into their clubhouse, whether it was the Yankees or Red Sox. So I didn't see the Boone home run, uh, you know, with my own eyes. I was listening to Joe and Tim McCarver on my earpiece. It was about a 10-inch, tiny black-and-white TV. I was watching in the bowels of the old Yankee Stadium with a bunch of police officers who were down there. So Boone hits the home run, and I scramble. I go into the Yankee clubhouse. We do all the interviews. Uh, Mrs. Autry's up there with the trophy and interviewed Joe Torre and Mariano Rivera and some of the other Yankees. And then uh, the producer, Pete Machesca, tells me, all right, throw it back up to Joe in the booth. We have to get to the late local news. It's about 1 in the morning at this point. Uh, the game had gone extra innings. Every Yankee-Red Sox game you know, seems to take four hours anyway, even if it ends in nine innings. And this one went real late. Out of the corner of my eye, as I'm throwing it back upstairs, I notice – the mayor of New York at the time, Michael Bloomberg, and he's at the side of the podium, and I kind of get the feeling that he wants to be interviewed next on television. Um, but like I said, we're off the air at this point. He had a young PR person with him, and that gentleman comes over to me and whispers, do you mind having the mayor on next? And I explain, well, we're, we're off the air. We had to get to the late local news. And the PR guy says to me, can you fake it? So I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, He wants to save his job. So I, I said to the cameraman, 
can you make it look like you're filming this interview? So the mayor comes up and I said to him, this is on tape. I didn't want him to think it was live and then hear that it wasn't on. So I told him it was being taped. Uh, went ahead, did about a five minute interview, which never went anywhere. wasn't even taped. I asked him about growing up in Boston. His mom was still a Red Sox fan. He's a Yankees fan now. And back and forth for about five minutes with the mayor of New York at the time, uh, an interview that never made it on television. Now, fast forward six years or seven years to 2010, Yankees-Angels, the game I mentioned earlier, worked the football game in Pittsburgh that afternoon. New Yankee Stadium, Yankees beat the Angels to go to the World Series. And I'm interviewing Joe Girardi, the manager at the time, CC Sabathia, Jorge Posada, Alex Rodriguez. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm talking to CC. I'm looking to my right where he's standing. And out of the corner of my eye to the left, I see somebody come up onto the podium. Again, it's Mayor Bloomberg. Now, at this point, the producer, Pete Machesca, once again, is yelling in my ear, don't turn to your left. Don't ask the mayor a question. So it's kind of awkward and uncomfortable because the mayor's standing there and they're telling me not to ask him a question. Turns out it was an election year. He was up for re-election in a week or two. And if I had asked Mayor Bloomberg a question, Fox would have had to give his opponent equal time. So somebody in the truck was smart enough to figure that out. And for the second time, uh, we sort of blew off Mayor Bloomberg. <laughs> Did he ever follow up with you on that or say, what happened to that interview? Was there any repercussions at all? Not that I know of. Um, I had interviewed him once prior at a Rangers game, so we went one for three with Mayor Bloomberg personally. Um, from what I'm told and from what I remember following the 2010 incident, um, his office did call Fox the next day to complain that we did not interview him. But once it was explained why uh, the equal time rule, after that they seemed to be okay with it. The last thing I'm going to ask you about is doing the international feed for the Super Bowl on the second matchup between the Giants and the Patriots. What exactly is the international feed of the Super Bowl? Is that I'm assuming it's English language for anybody abroad? Correct. It's uh, it's the world feed, the international feed, which is English language. I worked the game with Joe Theismann. Um, for us, it was somewhat of a radio broadcast because we were never on camera, so it was somewhat relaxed, um, although we called it like we would on television, but we just never had to go on camera at any time before the game or at halftime or after the game. And It was in Indianapolis, January 2012. It was a huge thrill to work a Super Bowl. I had been to three others as a fan, and uh, that opportunity came about because uh, Bob Papa, who does some work for the NFL Network, usually does the international feed, uh, but the Giants made it to the Super Bowl that year, and he's their radio play-by-play broadcaster. So I had the opportunity to uh, work that Super Bowl, and it was the most recent one, won by the Giants over the Patriots. Uh, A lot of fun. Uh, That's obviously a goal of most play-by-play broadcasters, to work the biggest events, and the Super Bowl is certainly the biggest out there. So had the opportunity to work that one with Joe Theismann, who I also do the Redskin preseason games with every year. So we had a familiarity with each other and uh, really enjoyed it. It's, it's certainly up there with the top events that I've ever had the good fortune to work. Why does that feed need to exist? Why can't they just use the existing feed? Is, this, is the international feed not through Fox? Well, they use most of the Fox cameras or, or CBS or NBC cameras, as far as I know. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure the answer to that. I'm sure there is a, an answer, uh, either 
logistically or technologically why they have to uh, use a separate broadcast. And I know they still do it, but I'm not sure exactly uh, the complete answer to that question. Well, it doesn't really matter that much. If you get asked to do the Super Bowl, you just say yes. You don't worry about the rest. Exactly. You say yes, when do you need me there? And uh, uh, you don't even need to pay me, although they did, so that was very nice. (laughs) Well, once again, we are visiting with Kenny Albert, the voice of everything in sports. He does uh, the New York Rangers, Fox, baseball and football and hockey on NBC. And Kenny, thanks so much for giving me a little bit of your time for the Say the Damn Score podcast. Well, Logan, really enjoyed it. Uh, Like I said, you really did your research and always enjoy reminiscing about some of the old stories and hopefully we can do this again one day. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. That's Say the Damn Score on Instagram or at radio underscore Logan on Twitter or facebook.com slash saythedamnscore. Any kind of reviews or emails or honest feedback of any other variety is always greatly appreciated and helps to make the show better. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.